Blog Talk Radio. From the far reaches of the known universe, we are proud to present Brother Harold Muhammad, soldier, scientist, scholar. Blog Talk Radio's finest. Not so mad science. On Black Hole Radio. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to tonight's edition of Not So Mad Science here on the Black Hole Radio Network. Coming to you live as always from the city of Detroit, Motown. Yes, good Mary Gordon of Motown to LA does not mean Detroit has lost its soul. With your host, Brother Harold Mahali. We're going to open up tonight's program with Masterpiece by the temptation, and we're going to get into the subject of the psychology of war and its psychological consequences. What does it take to make war? What mind is required to take life for territory, possessions, power, or influence? What is the psychology of war? What are the impacts on the minds of those exposed to war? Thus, ultimately, who is the warmonger? Who is the bringer of death, pain, and destruction for personal gain? This is not so mad science, and we'll be right back.
I lived in a place they called Bedford City. Getting ahead was strictly a no-no, because nobody cares what happens to the folks that live in the ghetto. Thousands of wasting away, people living from day to day. It's a challenge, just staying alive, because in the ghetto,
Assalamu alaikum. This is not so mad science. It's your host of the Harold Muhammad here on the Black Hole Radio Network. We make war with ignorance. We make war with lack of education. We make war with poverty. These are wars with which produce and grow something from its activity of action to do. Yet, when we look in Scripture, in the Bible, in the King James Version, it says, and they worshipped the dragon and gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? In the Amplified Version of the Bible, it reads, they fell down and worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. They also worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like as great as the beast? Who is able to wage war against him? This is a war of avarice. These are wars of greed. These are wars for power and influence, which is the crux of the tonight's program. <laughs> what is the psychology of war? There was a paper written by a Ph.D., in psychology today and he asked the question the psychology of war why do humans find it so difficult to live in peace so I refer you back to the quotations from scripture revelations 13 14 I believe it is in the King James Version and they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. Let us ask the question again. Why do humans find it so difficult to live in peace? And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who was able to make war with him? Read any book about history of the world, and it is likely that you'll be left with one overriding impression that human beings find it impossible to live in peace with one another. 
but that history only goes back a period of time. Well, there was a time prior to the coming of the beast, the new man, the ready man. from the caves and hillsides of Europe that it became difficult to live in peace. So today, we can say, just when the world appears to be close to another major conflict, the war of Russia invading another country, Russia and Ukraine. It seems a good time to ponder why this seems to be the case. Books on world history usually begin with the civilizations of Sumer and Egypt, which is incorrect. These nations arose, according to historians, around 3000 B.C. But we know from the anthropological record that civilizations predated even these that lived in a peaceful environment. But from that point until the present day, History is little more than a catalog of endless wars. From 1740 and 1897, there were 230 wars and revolutions in Europe alone. And during this time, countries were almost bankrupting themselves with their military expenditures. Warfare actually became slightly less frequent during the 19th century, primarily due to economic issues and the early 20th century. But this was only because of the awesome technological power nations could utilize, which meant that wars were over more quickly. They were there. They were over so quickly that it would appear they didn't register. In reality, the death toll from wars during the so-called quiet period rose sharply. Whereas only 30 million people died in all the wars between 1740 to 1897, estimates of the number of dead in the First World War ranged from 5 million to 13 million. War didn't become less frequent. It only became more efficient. And a staggering 50 million people died during the Second World War. Since then, deaths from warfare looks like it has declined significantly. So how do we explain this Pathological behavior for war. Evolutionary psychologists sometimes suggest 
that it is natural for human groups to wage war because we're made of a selfish, made up of selfish genes that demand to be replicated. This is contrary to the truth. But this is what they say. So it's natural for us to get hold of resources and help that help us survive and to fight over them with other groups. Only when your motive is greed, gain, and profit. As we see now with the pharmaceutical companies. They're out to make money. Moderna alone has seen a profit of $17 billion with the advent of COVID. With a vaccine that is scientifically, if they tell the truth, ineffective. But there's money to be made. Diabetic medicines that take $10 to make will cost you $1,000 or more. It cost them $10 to make, but they're charging thousands for the diabetic to get the medication that they need to survive. That's war, profit, and gain. So there's no selfish gene. There are selfish people. Is it natural for us to get a hold of resources that help us to survive and to just fight over them with other groups than it is to share? Other groups potentially endanger our survival, so we have to compete and fight with them. There are other biological attempts to explain war. Supposedly, men are biologically primed to fight wars because of the large amount of testosterone they contain. Since it is widely believed that testosterone is linked to aggression, violence may also be linked to a low level of serotonin. Since there is evidence that when animals are injected with serotonin, they become less aggressive. These explanations are highly problematic and cannot be scientifically proven to be factual. For example, they cannot explain the apparent lack of warfare in early human history. This is a history that predates the coming of the ready man. the barbarians at the gates. And the lack of relative conflict in most traditional hunter-gatherer societies. This is a hotly debated issue. And there are some scholars and scientists who claim that warfare has always existed in human societies. Not so. Not in the matter, manner, mindset, or thought 
processes of today. Many archaeologists and anthropologists dispute this concept. And I believe that the evidence is firmly, for example, last year an anthropologist, Douglas Douglas Fry and Patrick Soderbergh, published a study of violence in 21 modern hunter-gatherer groups and found that over the last 200 years, lethal attacks by one group on another were extremely rare. They identified 148 deaths by violence among the groups during this period and found that the great majority were the result of one-on-one conflict or one family against another family. Hatfield and McCoy type feuds. Not a community, society, or nation. Similarly, the anthropologist R. Brian Ferguson has amassed convincing evidence to show that warfare is only around six to 10,000 years old and only became frequent around 6,000 years ago. Who came? 6,000 years ago. Ready man. The beast. Add one problem biological theories of warfare is that while they might be able to explain specific outbreaks of violence, warfare by definition is actually much more than this. It is a highly planned and organized activity, mostly conducted and organized in nonviolent situations, which does not involve a great deal of actual fighting. The first psychologist to investigate war, European psychologist, was William James, who wrote an essay titled The Moral Equivalent of War in 1910. Here, Mr. James, according to the referencing material of Steve Tyler, the Ph.D., He says, James suggests that warfare was so prevalent because of its positive psychological effects both on the individual and on society as a whole. On a social level, war delivers a sense of unity in the face of a collective threat. Key word there, collective threat. It binds peoples together, not just the army engaged in battle, but the whole community. It brings what James referred to as discipline, a sense of cohesion with communal goals. The war effort inspires individual citizens, not just soldiers, to behave honorably and unselfishly in service of a greater good. But as we know here in America, when we look at World War One, World War Two, the Korean conflict, 
Vietnam. When we look at these wars, there was a financial gain for a select few who were in positions of authority and influence to make war that did not benefit the social makeup and minds of the national ideal and concept. It did not benefit the people. But it was the people that fought the war. In a book titled Back to Sanity, it emphasized two further important facts. One obvious factor is the drive to increase wealth, status, and power. A major and primary motivation for war and warfare is the desire of one group of human beings, individuals, usually government, not the people, the government, but often the general population of a country, tribe, or ethnic group to increase their power and wealth. That group tries to do this by conquering and subjugating other groups and by seizing their territory and resources. Look at this now. We're looking at these so-called psychological explanations. Pick almost any war in history and you will find some variant of these causes for war to annex new territory, to colonialize new lands, colonize new areas, to take control of valuable minerals or oil to help build an empire to increase prestige and wealth or to avenge a previous humiliation who's diminished a group's power, prestige, and wealth. That is the case today. But there are those nations which did not follow that route in their war for independence from those who made war for greed and avarice. One must ask the question, why was Colonel Muammar Gaddafi of Libya assassinated and murdered and driven from power? Because the resources, the wealth of the country was used to fund the people of the country. The process, people-driven need to satisfy and serve. Therefore, that example could not be allowed to flourish and continue in today's social governmental makeup. The present conflict in the Ukraine with Russia may be partly interpreted in these terms of prestige and wealth or revenge, previous humiliation. 
or a diminishing of powers. The result of Russia's desire to increase its territory and prestige by gaining control of the Primera and responding to the prestige-weakening blow of losing, losing its favorite government in the Ukraine. Secondly, war is strongly related to group identity. Human beings, these new people, in general, have a strong need for belonging and identity which can easily be manipulated and manifest itself in ethnicism, nationalism, or religious dogmatism. We have multiple examples of this. Quote 45 is a dramatic and present example of this. This mindset, it encourages people to cling to the, the identity of their ethnic group, country, or their religion, and to feel a sense of pride in being British, American. But not all persons in this group feel prideful depending on their rank of citizens. White, black, Christian, Muslim, Protestant, Catholic. Where do you rank in your Americanism? Which then determines your degree of patriotic loyalty. The problem with this isn't so much having pride in our identity but the attitude it engenders towards other groups. Identifying exclusively with a particular group automatically creates a sense of rivalry and enmity with other groups. However, this depends, again, on where you rank in the social scheme or how those who sit above or believe they are above look down to others in society where they sit in their seats of control. Therefore, their gaze is going to be down. You are less. You are not equal. In fact, most conflicts throughout history have been a clash between two or more different identity groups. The Christians and Muslims in the Crusades, the Jews and Arabs, Hindus and Muslims in India, Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, Israelis and Palestinians, Serbs and Croats and Bosnians and so on. There's an instigator and a retaliator 
and the retaliator is the subjugated group. Again, the present conflict in Ukraine can be easily interpreted in these terms. The dispute over Crimea lies in the fact that most of the region's population identify themselves as ethnic Russians, while the ethnic Ukrainians wish to preserve their own independent identity away from Russian influence. Again, this is supposition, but a potential possibility. The issue of empathy is important here. One of the most dangerous aspects of group identity is is what psychologists call moral exclusion. This happens when we withdraw moral and human rights to other groups and deny them respect and primarily justice. Why did he come? He who? The Son of Man. He came to bring justice to the land. Justice. Moral standards are only applied to members of their own group. They exclude members of other groups from their moral community. And it becomes all too easy for them to exploit, oppress, and even kill them. One could say the good news is since the end of the Second World War, as Steven Pinker pointed out in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, there has been a steadily worldwide decline in the number of deaths due to warfare. In Europe, countries that have been in an almost constant state of war with one another or more of their neighbors for centuries, such as France and Germany, Great Britain, Spain, Holland, Poland, and Russia, have experienced an unprecedentedly long period, I would not say peace, but the status quo. What we know from Scripture there still have been wars and rumors of war. Russia, so-called invasion or the invasion of Ukraine, was once a rumor of war, but is now an actual fact. But Mr. Pinker points out the decades after the Second World War, up till the 1980s, saw an increase in intrastate violence in the world as a whole due to a large number of civil wars. But since the 1980s, intrastate violence has declined too, or has appeared to be so, over the last 25 to 30 years. 
Thus, there has been a correspondingly low number of casualties. There are a number of obvious factors responsible for this increased peacefulness. For example, the ever-present nuclear deterrent. Some would like to believe it's a growth of democracy, making it more difficult for governments to declare war against the will of the citizens. However, a colonizer is just a colonizer. Whether he tricked you through his politics, whether he bought your morality with his money to gain control over your government or through his media campaign to drive an idea that is foreign to your native area. There are a number of obvious factors responsible for this increased peace. if they would tell the truth. But that's not what this program is about tonight. And I don't want to go to the direction, the theological direction on this ad yet. Because I want to look at the science of it before you begin to dig into the source of it. Strange as it may sound, perhaps one could say sports is a factor. Sport is a good example of what William James meant by the moral equivalent of war, an activity that satisfies similar psychological needs to war and has a similar invigorating and social binding effect but does not involve the same degree of violence and devastation. Perhaps it is not a coincidence that over 75 years of this steady steady decline in conflict, sport has grown. Current Respondingly in popularity. But these past Olympics show that cheating is still just cheating. Another important factor is the interconnection, increased contact between people of different nations due to higher levels of international trade and travel. Most recently, this travel is via the internet. It is likely that this increased interconnection leads to a decline in group identity and an enmity toward another group. It may promote moral inclusions, an example of empathy, and make it less possible for us to perceive different groups as other to us. It helps us to sense that if they appear culturally culturally or racially different, all human beings are essentially the same as us. That's what one could hope this 
advent of the Internet has exposed socially. There's a downside, a huge downside, and we need to take this downside into consideration. But again, that's a subject for another program. I personally am not an, an not an apologist for globalization. You lose cultural identities with globalization. You lose individual tactile connectivity with globalization. You forget who you are and where you came from and how you suffered with globalization. Perhaps then one would hope that as a species, we are slowly beginning to transcend the pathological need of warfare. Hopefully, conflicts such as the present one in the Ukraine with Russia will be seen more and more as an aberration as group identities fade further and a sense of moral inclusion increases and perhaps eventually if this process continues the need for social identity will fade away to the point that empathy extends indiscriminately to and from all human beings so that becomes impossible even for power-greedy governments to exploit or oppress other groups in service of their own desires. But that only exists where the oneness of God is present, where conflict is determined by how God is seen. As a Muslim, we learn that wherever two of us are gathered, male and female, male and male, female and female, and female, there's always a third person there. The third person is the concept and idea of God. And he is the deciding factor. One can say that there are also environmental implications or explanations for war, such as population pressure, which unfortunately means I don't have space to discuss this here. But if you ask the well, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations and other institutions like it, there are too many people in the world, and we must exterminate and eliminate a significant portion of the population. One way to do that is through your intelligence agencies create and foment the need for war where war need not so that people exterminate themselves. To partially quote the words of the former Secretary of State or the National Security Advisor, I think he was, 
the big new Brzezinski, where at one time it was easier to control a million people, it is now far easier just to kill them. And if you can convince them, as proven in the inner cities and ghettos of America where the darker people live, <coughs> if you can get them to kill themselves, we have done a great and wonderful thing. This is not so mad science here on the Black Hole Radio Network. We are not done. We're going to take a, oh, let's see, maybe a two-minute, two-minute and change break. Let's see what we can do here for the next two minutes. Oh, we got so much to choose from, and I don't want to how you say, uh, not give you the full value. Let's try a little bit of Ariana Grande position. of war, there are psychological consequences to war. In an abstract written by R.S. Murti and Rashini, and forgive me for the pronunciation of this, this name, Lakshinrayana for world psychiatry. Their abstract says, among the consequences of war, the impact on the mental health of the civilian population is one of the most significant. 
studies of the general population show a definite increase in the incidence and prevalence of mental disorders. Women are more affected than men. Other vulnerable vulnerable groups are children, the elderly, and the disabled. Prevalent rates are associated with the degree of trauma and the availability of physical and emotional support. The use of cultural and religious coping strategies is frequent in developing countries. It is identified in this abstract back in 2005 there is a significant or was a significant in understanding the relationship between war and mental health. It was the 30th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War and the start of the war in Lebanon. Every day the media was bringing the horrors of the ongoing war of the situation in Iraq. Quotations from the media depict the impact of war on mental health. To quote, we are living in a state of constant fear in Iraq. War takes a toll on the Iraqi mental health. War trauma leaves physical marks, physical marks. War is hell. It has an impact on the people who take part that never heals. War is terrible and beyond the understanding and experience of most people. For those are generations that grew up only knowing war. The conditions of soldiers that came back from Vietnam were not just psychologically impacted by the fighting of the war. Those who looked upon these men and women that returned suffered psychologically. The families of these men and women suffered psychologically. The Iraqi-Iran conflict, these people suffered dramatically upon their return. In the oil field, they suffered upon their return. Afghanistan, they suffered not just there, but the impact on people here. They suffered greatly, psychologically. Their mental health mothers who came back names who left looking like great, beautiful women when they left but wanted to do their part. They went off to war, came home being abused by the ones they went to war with. The psychological consequences of war. Wars have had an important part in psychiatric history in a number of ways. It was the psychological impact of the world wars in the form of shell shock 
that supported the effectiveness of psychological interventions during the first half of the 20th century. It was the recognition of a proportion of the population not suitable for army recruitment during the Second World War that spurred the setting up of the National Institute of Mental Health in the United States. The differences in the presentation of the psychological symptoms among the officers and the soldiers opened up new ways of understanding the psychiatric reactions to stress. During past years, a large number of books and documents have addressed the effects of war on mental health. They include the WPA book, Disasters and Mental Health, the World Bank Report, Mental Health and Conflict, Conceptual Framework and Approaches, the United Nations book, Trauma Interventions in War and Peace, Prevention, Practice, and Policy. The United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, produced a document. The State of the World's Children, Childhood Under Threat. The book, Trauma and the Role of Mental Health in Post-Conflict Recovery. And a chapter on the war and mental health in Africa in the WPA book. Essentials of Clinical Psychology for Sub-Saharan Africa. There have not been any world wars since the Second World War, so they say. There have been wars and conflicts throughout the last 60 years. For example... In the 22 countries of the so-called Eastern Mediterranean region of the World Health Organization, the WHO, over 80% of the population either is in a conflict situation or has experienced such a situation in the last quarter of the century. War has a catastrophic effect on the health and well-being of nations. Studies have shown that conflict situations cause more mortality and disability than any major disease. War destroys communities and families and often disrupts the development of the social and economic fabric of nations. The effects of war include long-term physical and psychological harm to children and adults, as well as reduction in material and human capital. Death as a result of war is simply the tip of the iceberg. Other consequences besides death are not well documented. They include Endemic poverty, malnutrition, disability, economic and social decline, and psychosocial illnesses, to mention just a few. Only through a greater understanding of conflicts and the myriad of mental health problems that arise from them 
coherent and effective strategies for dealing with such problems can be developed. The World Health Organization could play an important role to attribute to dealing with the psychological traumas of war if they did their job. The World Health Organization estimated that in the situations of armed conflicts around the world, 10% of the people who experience traumatic events will have serious mental health problems and another 10% will develop behavior that will hinder their ability to function effectively. That's 20% of the population. The most common conditions are depression, anxiety, psychosomatic problems, such as insomnia, or back and stomach aches with no direct discernible physical cause. So what are the impacts of war on mental health? In Afghanistan, more than two decades after the conflict have led to widespread human suffering and population displacement in Afghanistan. Two studies from the United States are significant in terms of both their scope and findings. The first study showed a national multi-stage cluster population based on surveys, including 799 adult household members aged 15 years and above. 62% of the respondents reported experiencing at least four trauma events during the previous 10 years. Symptoms of depression were found in 67.7% of the respondents, symptoms of anxiety in 72.2%, and 42% experienced PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. The disabled and the women had a poorer mental health status, and there was a significant relationship between the mental health status and traumatic events. Coping strategies included religious and spiritual practices. The second study, using a cross-sectional multi-cluster sample, was conducted in Nanagaha province of Afghanistan to estimate the prevalence of psychiatric symptoms, identifying sources used for emotional support and risk factors, and assess the present coverage of basic needs. About 1,011 respondents aged 15 years and above formed that sample. Nearly half of the population had experienced traumatic events. Symptoms of depression were observed in 38.5% of the respondents. 51.8% experienced symptoms of anxiety. And 20% experienced PTSD. High rate of symptoms were associated with higher numbers of traumatic events experienced. 
women at higher rates than men. The main sources of emotional support were religion and family. The results in the Balkans weren't any different. In Cambodia, the results were a mirror reflection of the results from the results in Afghanistan. In Chechnya, again, a mirror reflection. Iraq, Israel, Lebanon, Palestine, Rwanda, Sri Lanka, Somalia, Uganda. All these countries, regardless of the decade in which these conflicts took place, the respondents all responded back with these same results. So what are the risk factors? From the large amounts of studies reviewed, some broad risk factors are associated and can be drawn. Women have an increased vulnerability to the psychological consequences of war. There is evidence of a high correlation between mothers and children's distress in war situations. It is now known that maternal depression in the prenatal and postnatal period predicts poorer growth in a community-based sample of infants. Social support and traditional birth attendance have a major role in promoting Maternal, maternal psychosocial well-being in war-affected regions. The association between gender and gender-based violence and common mental disorders is well known. Despite their vulnerability, women's resilience under stress and its role in sustaining their family cannot be ignored and is recognized. There is a consistent evidence of higher rates of trauma-related psychological problems in children. The most impressive reports are those from Palestine, though. Of the different age groups, the most vulnerable are the adolescents. Why is that? The adult males are dead. So it's children, 16 and under, fighting the war with Israel. The direct correlation between the degree of trauma and the amount of the psychological problems is consistent across a number of studies. The greater exposure to trauma, both psychological and physical, the more pronounced are the symptoms. Subsequent life events and their associations with the occurrence of psychiatric problems have important implications for fast and complete rehabilitation as a way of minimizing the ill effects of conflict situations. So what's the conclusion? The occurrence of a wide variety of psychological symptoms and syndromes in the populations in conflict situations are widely documented by available research. However, research also provides evidence 
about the resilience of more than half of the populations in the face of the worst trauma and war situations. So what is the point that I'm getting to? The black community has been in a state of war since 1555, where we have experienced the worst treatment and conditions of any people ever in documented human history. It is only now, since July 4th, 1930, that we begin to rise out of that condition and get our eyes or part of our nose above the mud to see that there's a better way. So what is the psychology of war today? The psychology of war today must be focused toward killing the idea of ignorance. What is the psychology of war today in our community? Stop killing self and grow self. What are the psychological consequences of war? We are all brain damaged. But brain damage can be repaired. And this is not so mad science with your host, Brother Harold Muhammad here on the Black Hole Radio Network. That brings us to the end of tonight's program. Allah willing, we'll be back next week to look at the theological mind of war and its psychological impact. So to that end, I leave you as I came before you with the words of peace and paradise of life. Salam alaikum. And those immortal words of Adam Clayton Powell Jr., that magnanimous black pastor of the Abyssinian Baptist Church in New York City. And let the choir say, keep the faith, baby. Keep the faith. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.